0: Brothers and sisters, that is our call. In this life, we will face many trials. We will face tribulation. We will face hardships. And it is through many tribulations and trials that we enter the kingdom of God. And with that thought in your mind, I want you to turn now over to James as he will give us practical wisdom when it comes to facing the trials of this life. Our text will be James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Follow along with me as we hear the word of God read. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. This ends the reading of the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, I want to share with you a message that is timeless. A message that we all would find to be relevant in our lives. And it's about facing trials. It is about facing the trials of this life. And my charge to you this morning, from the very outset, is the call that James has here for us. That we would suffer well in this life. No matter who you are, no matter where you live, when you have lived, how you have lived, there's a commonality that we all share, and it is trials. And this is the timeless message that James gives us here. I don't want to take too much time in verse 1, but just to let it be said, this is James, this is the brother of Jesus. He's a pillar in the Jerusalem church. He's the man that's there giving his wisdom in Acts chapter 15. He's wise and well-respected. He's also the one that will suffer a martyr's death for his faith in Jesus Christ. He too in his life suffered and suffered well until the end. And so if we were to summarize here verses 1 through 12, it is this. Suffer well. Build endurance in the faith so that you might finish well in life. We would notice here that James is extremely practical in his writings. He calls his recipients here immediately to action. His letter differs from many of the other epistles. We often like to compare James with Paul, and that's right. And I couldn't even get into James before I had to go to Paul. It's it. But we understand that they're fighting different battles, they write differently. Paul likes to put mostly his, his theology, he will set it forth in the indicatives, and then like say Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are the imperatives. This is what you do with this truth. Well, James just weaves it all the way through his letters. He's moving from the indicatives to the imperatives, the truth to the action. And James's theology, again, woven throughout his letter. And that's what we see here even at the beginning here in chapter 2. He goes straight to action. James is a lot like Mark. He wants to call, the call to action swiftly. James moves from his greeting here in verse 1, the 12 tribes in the dispersion, these Jewish believers that have been dispersed. And he calls them to action here. He wants his brothers and sisters in Christ to suffer well, to persevere, and to finish well. Through the years of uh, ministering to students in my church, one of the questions I often ask the students, and I think it's a a question that we should always be asking of ourselves, I ask them, how do you want to be remembered when you die? If you could attend, and this is a question I pose to you, if you could attend your own funeral, and as they set the microphone up, and people would come up and share about the impact of your life. What do you want said about you when this life is over? What do you want to hear? I think about my own life. and I want three words. And I believe this is the heartbeat of all of us who are Christians. We want three words to be said. He finished well. He finished well. Well, in order for us to finish well, in order for us to echo the prayer and the passion and the pursuit of the Apostle Paul who says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. In order to do this, we must run well. We must suffer well. We must repent well. To finish well, we must run well. And this is the message from James this morning. We want to finish well. Then, how is it that we can suffer well in this life? And the first heading that I would supply to you, coming from verses 2 through 4, is that we must have the right attitude. It is the right attitude. James will say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. This is the attitude that James calls the believers to have when facing Trials. You think about it, when we face trials, I think in and of ourselves, naturally, we can count it as everything but joy. James is calling his readers here to something radical, something different, something that in and of our natural state is impossible. This is contrary to human nature. Only a life that has been transformed by the power of the gospel, enabled by the Holy Spirit, has even the ability to do this, to look at trials in this way, to count them as all joy. The trials of this life, he says, are many. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face or you meet trials of various kinds. He's not meaning here merely external, but also maybe internal trials. We are all facing trials in this life. Something Pastor Jim McIquinesit often says, we are either in a trial, being prepared for a trial, or coming out of a trial. But that's our lot in life. And he says these are various kinds. It could be external persecution. You could be getting marginalized at work because you're a Christian. You might be marginalized by your family because you're the only Christian in your family. This is why Peter writes 1 Peter, chapter, or 1 Peter. You might have been suffering for various trials, infertility, a miscarriage. You might have an unbelieving spouse, trials in the workplace, a difficult boss, wayward children, financial issues. These are external trials, but there's also the internal trials that we fight that we face. Fighting the lust of the flesh, covetousness, the internal battle against self and remaining sin. We fight trials both outwardly and inwardly. I think you get the point here. And the list could go on. But they are various in nature. And James says, count it all joy when you face these trials. And he gives the explanation. I think about this. And I ask, we have to ask the question, why should I? Why should I count it all joy? When trials hit my life, when, when, when it seems like the bottom falls out and there seems to be nowhere to look and I'm at rock bottom, how can I count that as joy? Why should I do such a thing? James gives us the answer. Verse 3. For you know. Brothers and sisters, you know why the trials of this life come. You know, because of the sovereignty of God, these trials have been sent to you for a purpose. Not for your punishment. No, in fact, for something far greater than that. James says, for you know, you already know this. You who have been brought forth by the word of truth. Count it all joy, for you know these trials that you (coughs) face is the testing of your faith in order to produce a steadfastness in you that ultimately makes you look more like Jesus. This is the attitude that we are to have when we face trials and difficulties in this life. We know this. So what does this mean? This is why we come together, to be reminded of these things. This is why we need the Lord's Day every Sunday. We need to come together in corporate worship. We need to sit under the ministry of the Word. We need to be reminded because oftentimes when we are in trials, sometimes our thinking can go awry. And we need a brother or sister to come alongside of us and remind us why we are facing these trials. Why? So that God will continue the good work that he has done and begun in us to make us more like Jesus. So when you meet trials, brothers and sisters, <laughs> rejoice. For God is doing a work in your life to conform you to the image of his son. This is the right attitude that we are to have when we face trials. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's not saying you're going to be made sinless, but this wholeness about you lacking in nothing. Trials strengthen us. Trials strengthen. Do a work in us. This is the right attitude that we are to have. But notice here also, if we are to suffer well and ultimately finish well, the right attitude leads to the right action. The right action, verses 5 through 8. So I'm supposed to count it all joy when trials come into my life? Well, what am I supposed to do Remember, it's thinking that leads to doing. So your attitude leads to action. If our attitude's in the right spot, we need to do something about it as we face trials. And James goes to the most important thing and of first importance. When you face trials, pray. He says, seek wisdom through prayer. In the midst of trials, I don't know if you're like me. I want to figure everything out. I want to find the path of least resistance. I want to go down that path. And I want to get out of this trial. And oftentimes I just compound the trial. You no, know, James says here if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. He's calling for a reflex here. When you face suffering and trials, What's your first reaction? What's your knee-jerk reaction? Is it that I need to go to God? That I need to I need to submit myself to God in humble obedience, in dependence upon God, that I would go to Him in prayer. Action without prayer is actually just independence, is it not? As we had just even stated here in the Lord's Prayer: give us this day our daily bread. This is our dependence upon God. We are dependent upon him. For wisdom in trials. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, do you trust God? No, let me ask it in another way. Are you trusting God in the trials that you are facing right now? For Remember, we are either being prepared for a trial, we are in a trial, or we are coming out of one. Are you trusting in God? Does the sovereignty of God help you with whatever you're facing? If we lack wisdom through trials, this is a recipe for disaster. We will lean on our own understanding. We won't see trials for what they are. We will allow them to affect us in negative ways. So right here in verse 5, James appeals to theology proper. The doctrine of God. We must have our doctrine of God correct, especially when we're in trials. Really, when we face trials, that's when our theology is exposed. That's when we know where we go. And so when we think here, James appeals to theology proper, doctrine of God, because right action flows from right understanding of who God is. And James would tell us here in verse 5, notice here, follow along with me concerning God. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Let him ask God. He is the God who gives. We We are to pray to the one who gives. James would say in chapter 4, verse 2, that you do not have because you do not ask. He's not only the God who gives, but James tells us here, he gives generously. God gives generously to all who ask. This means God gives out of his abundance. It's not that God is begrudgingly wanting to hold back his wisdom from us, he delights in giving. And understand this, when God gives, and God gives generously, it is a gift. It is not a debt. Not only does God give here, and not only do we see that God gives generously, but he says he gives to all. God shows no partiality. James would go on to deal with this in chapter 2. Wisdom from God is given to all who honestly seek it. You do not have to be a a certain IQ. You do not have to have a certain smart. You don't have to be a certain level of intelligence to receive wisdom from God. In fact, some of the smartest people in this world are fools. They lack wisdom. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. It's not a matter of being smart enough or intelligent enough. It is the word of God in us. So he gives to all, as he says here, without reproach. This means that God does not say you should have asked for it sooner. That I'm going to withhold wisdom from you because you dragged your feet in asking for it. No. Or God says, I know what you did last week and how you failed in that trial. So I'm not going to give you wisdom today. You will not be chastised by God for seeking and asking for wisdom in trials. He simply gives. He is the God who gives generously to all without reproach. But here is the condition we would see in verse 6. We must believe. We must have a confidence in God giving us wisdom in our trials. A confident faith. If you doubt, you are doubting God. You're doubting who God has said and revealed himself to be. James has strong words here for those who doubt the goodness and the generosity of God. That person is like a double minded person who's tossed by the wind. He should not suppose he would receive anything unstable in all his ways. Well, brothers and sisters, let me remind you what the psalmist says in Psalm 46. That God is our refuge and our strength. He is a very present help in the time of trouble. James tells us, run to him. In your trials, in your difficulties, run to the Lord. Run to Christ. I think of young children. I've got many of them. And they face various trials. Parents, you understand this. Where do the little children go when trials come? To the one who they do not doubt their goodness, they do not doubt the kindness, it's their parents, is it not? They go in confident faith, trusting that mommy or daddy is going to be there for them as they face these horrific trials in their lives. Right now, my daughter Hazel is facing a significant trial in her life, and to her this is a very big deal. Almost every night, her blankets fall off in her room. I think, to have the suffering of a (laughs) four-year-old. And without doubting, she gets up out of bed, and she runs into her parents' room, and she knows exactly where to go. She runs to one side of the bed, and you know it's Mom's side of the bed. (laughs) And in sincerity of heart, she asks her mom for help. My blankets have fallen off. Can you tuck me back in? Can I get cozy, Mom? because she does not doubt the loving care of her mother. The other night I was laying in bed, and it was 3 o'clock in the morning, and, and the lights downstairs started to flicker, and that, my heart starts pounding on what's going on here. And the lights turn on, the lights turn off, and it's all fight or flight's coming. And so then I hear these little steps come, these little feet coming up the steps. And it's my son. He walks in the room and says, I just can't sleep. I had a bad dream. I comes on over. Son, I can't sleep either. Let's pray. And so even there the example of children, they run in childlike faith to their parents, to the one that they do not doubt their love and care. And we are called to have that same childlike faith. We run to our heavenly Father in that knowing That he is there with us in our trials. He has sovereignly given us our trials to do a work in us. Where do you run to in difficulties? Where do you run to in trials? We cannot expect to suffer well or to build endurance in the faith if we neglect the means of grace that God has given us. Life is hard. Trials are many. And to consider it all joy, we are in need of wisdom from God that comes to a believing heart. And this leads here to the third heading I would supply to you. We are to have the right attitude in counting it all joy. We are to have the right action. We must be men and women of prayer, seeking the wisdom of God and dependence upon God. We are to have the right understanding here in trials, verses 9 through 11. James shifts, focus, shifts his focus a little bit to deal with uh, most likely a, a specific case study that is going on or a case that is happening in, uh, to the people that he's writing to. He deals with poverty and riches, a trial that has touched all of us at some point in life. There really was no middle class in the first century, so you were either rich or you were poor. And in verse 9 here, you would see, that the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation. He's dealing with the trial of poverty. In chapter 2, James deals with the harsh treatment that poor folks were receiving in the church. They're told to sit on the floor, to sit in the back. The poor were without proper clothing. The rich, The rich would withhold wages from the poor, knowing that they could do nothing about it. They were marginalized in many ways. And instead of getting bitter about this trial that the poor were facing, and thus forming a calloused heart, or looking at somebody else and coveting what they have, James tells the lowly brother to boast in his exaltation. And this is the principle that I want us to see here. This is the right understanding that James gives to us. Here's the point. We are to have the right understanding when facing trials. James is telling his brothers and the poor brothers and sisters to remember what they have what they have been that they have been exalted in the eyes of God. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Take your eyes off of the material circumstances around you. This is what James is saying. And remember what God has done for you in Christ. Focus upon your position in Christ. Commenting on this passage, MacArthur says, quote, that the believer who is deprived in this life can accept that that temporary and insignificant deprivation because he has a future divine inheritance that is both eternal and secure. This is why Peter would tell could tell a suffering people Blessed be the God and Father by various trials. We must understand, brothers and sisters, that the greatest treasure in this life is not our wealth or prosperity. No matter what class you belong to, upper class, middle class, lower class, the greatest treasure that we have in this life is that we belong to Christ. That Jesus is our treasure. God has exalted the poor. He has given them riches beyond all measure. This inheritance that we have received, that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee until we receive it. We must understand in trials, we must look at what God has done for us in Christ. Verses 10 and 11, James will deal with the other side. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Wealth has its trials, too. While this life might seem trouble-free, possessions multiply as do cares and temptations. For the rich, the trial is found in pride and self-sufficiency. James is not saying it's sinful to be rich, but there are many dangers there. And this is why James' charge to the rich is humility, verses 10, and the rich in his humiliation. He reminds them of the futility of chasing riches in verse 11. Just as the sun causes creation to wither, so will the riches of man fade away. Wealth is temporal. Consider the prayer of Proverbs 30. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So when trials come in our lives, it's important that we maintain the right understanding. And it is this, who we are in Christ. It is our position in Christ. Our dependency is upon God, not material things. Trials are the great equalizer, are they not? They don't discriminate. They come for us all. Rich or poor, you will face them. And this is why we must be people who preach the gospel to ourselves. We must preach the gospel to ourselves. It is knowing that, yes, suffering and difficulty will happen in this life, but there is a day that is coming. There is a day that is coming when these trials will be no more. There's a day that is coming, Revelation 21, where there will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth. And all the pain and all the suffering and all the sin and everything that has been marred by the curse will be no more. And the dwelling place of God will be with man. And we behold and we look forward to that day in faith because that's what we need today. We need to be reminded that it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. We need to be reminded that we are to set our minds on things that are above while the trials of this life can distract us in many ways and they also serve to remind us of the fallenness of this world, doesn't heaven look so much more beautiful? Isn't Christ so much more beautiful in the midst of our trials? It is this understanding that we need, that we are the redeemed of God, We've been purchased by the very blood and suffering of Jesus Christ. And we are no more like Christ than when we suffer with Him and for Him. We face trials of various kinds. And for the right understanding, this is what we need to remember also. Remember that the Son of God suffered well for you. For us, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, on the right hand of the throne room of God. He suffered well for us, he was forsaken that we might be forgiven. God treated him as the sinner though he knew no sin, so that he would treat us as the righteous one. what we are not. We are thankful that Jesus suffered well on our behalf. We are thankful for the nail-pierced hands, for the blood that was spilled on Calvary to purchase a people, to redeem a people, that Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, bearing the full weight of the wrath of God that is due our sin. And as he hangs there and absorbs it, as he's the propitiation and the expiation of the wrath of God, not only does he appease it, he expires the wrath of God. And as it was poured upon him, he takes the cup of the wrath of God, drinks it in full. And when he has exhausted the wrath of God, he cries out, it is finished or paid in full. It is done. We are redeemed. I need to know this. I need to look at a suffering Savior in my trials. It is always the cross before glory. We must have a theology of the cross. It is the cross before glory. But glory is coming, that day is coming. Christian, preach this gospel to yourself daily in the midst of suffering through trials so that in the dark days of soul pain, when it takes everything that you've got just to get out of bed, understand this, you have a blessed hope. You are the redeemed of God and you will be exalted. You have been secured by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Face these trials. Suffer well. And finally, as I've already touched on this, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast and under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is James's beatitude. The blessed man. And this is the call here. Look to the reward. Look to the blessed reward. Look to the finish line for your motivation. If you're running a race and you can't see the finish line, and it seems like you're just slugging it out, and you're getting discouraged because you're thinking, when is this going to be over? Christian, you are no more closer to eternity than right now. You can do this. You're going to make this. You're going to finish well, because it's God at work in you. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That finish line is in sight. There is light at the end of the tunnel. Look to the blessed rewards. After a life of building endurance and persevering, there's a crown that awaits each and every one of you. And it is not the diadem that is reserved for one and one alone. Jesus Christ has been crowned with the diadem. But this is the victor's wreath this is the, the 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 wreath that the olympian would wear as he stood on the platform after finishing his trial finishing his his race or whatever that uh, sporting event might be and we are promised the victor's wreath a sign of triumph when god calls you off the playing field of life and says son daughter it's time there is a crown that awaits When he looks upon your life and you hear those blessed words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. There is a crown that awaits you, the crown of life that God has promised. And what God promises, God fulfills. So, let me close here, even with uh, this illustration, not original to me, but I believe is fitting. When we think about the trials of life, consider high school. For some of you, that is, seems like forever away. For others of you, it seems like a long time ago. You are slugging away through your studies. You are tired of homework, tests, books, teachers giving dirty looks. You have a curfew. You have rules. You want freedom, and your parents say no. You are longing for the day when you go off to college, and you will finally be free and you think then these trials will cease. You are now in college and you are working to complete your major, long hours, 10 to 15 page papers, five to six times a semester. And you are working part-time to have a little cash. You think, man, when I get through these things, it will all be better. The trials will cease. You meet a boy or a girl in your senior year. You are thinking about marriage when your first job sends you 500 miles away. All you're able to do during the week is FaceTime or talk on the phone, and you're getting tired of kissing the phone goodnight every night. And you think, man, when we get closer, these trials will cease. Circumstances work in your favor, and you both are brought together and a marriage happens, but you soon realize after the honeymoon it's not exactly what you envisioned it to be. After a hard day at work, you come home and find that she ate all the ice cream When he sleeps you're wondering if he's practicing to be an MMA fighter or you buy earplugs because you can't sleep through the snoring. And you just think, once we get used to each other, a little more, this trial will cease. A year or two goes by, you find out that you're going to have a baby. No need to talk about bouts of morning sickness or fatigue. Men having to run out to satisfy every late night craving, ice cream and pickles. The baby comes, and you think the trials are over. She cries every other hour of the night. She is fed, her diaper is dry, and you're thinking, why won't she just fall asleep? You think, man, if we could just get her to sleep through the night, these trials will cease. Kids start to grow up, you're running to soccer, dance, baseball, shows, you name it. Life is full. You think once they get off to college, these trials will cease. Work is no different. There's a constant barrage of trials, trials with management. If the economy is good, things are good. But if it goes bad, you wonder if you'll still have a job. The thinking is, if I can just make it to retirement, these trials will cease. Retirement comes, ah, finally at last. You think you made it. No more work. Kids are supposed to be out of the house. (laughs) You think I'm going to travel and enjoy life. Yet you start to miss the camaraderie and the friendships you had while working. You start to wonder, maybe you're golfing too much. Health issues start to arise. And it is at this time that you begin to realize that the trials of this life never actually cease. This is why we need James's message here on trials. Especially the promises that he gives. So may God help us to suffer well in this life. With the right attitude. The right action, the right understanding, preaching the gospel to ourselves, looking to that blessed reward. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ministry of your word. Help us to live well, to finish well, that you would be glorified in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe now we.